You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the How to Hunt Turkeys podcast. I'm Paul Campbell. Join me as we dive into the world of turkey hunting. Every episode, we'll explore the minds of the finest turkey hunters around. We'll take a look at the people, the places, the tactics, gear, and the culture that creates the mystique around America's favorite bird. That's right. I said it. America's favorite bird, the wild turkey. Throw on your turkey vest, grab your box call, let's talk some turkey. How to Hunt Turkeys podcast is brought to you by Go Wild. Visit timetogowild.com or download the app on iOS or Android. Go Wild has all the gear the wild turkey hunter needs. Camo clothes, hats, vests, turkey calls, decoys, and everything else. Sign up for a free account today and get $10 off your first order. Timetogowild.com. Wicked North Gear, delivering the very best gear for a life well lived in the great outdoors. From field kits and DIY tax derby solutions to hats, hoodies, stickers, and more, visit wickednorthgear.com. Hey, baby. Welcome back to another episode of the How to Hunt Turkeys podcast. Uh, man, special guest today, Mr. Brent Rogers. Brent, thanks so much for coming on. You bet. My pleasure. So Brent, let's uh, give the give the listeners a rundown of 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 who you are, where you're from, and 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 what you do for a living, and 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 what uh, I, I will start with what turkey hunting means to you. That'll be the first first big question. I love that turkey hunting is a lifestyle. I think for me, and I think a lot of turkey hunters can identify with that. It's not just something I do, you know, a few days or a few weeks a year. It is a thread through my life. It is you know, my friends, it is my reading interest, my digital watching and, and audio listening interest. It's, it's uh, how my house is decorated sometimes to my wife's chagrin. She does have a couple of her, her own rooms, <laughs> but uh, you know, everything from uh, the calls to the uh, you know, to the organizations, I just really love the, the lifestyle. And, and so for me, turkey hunting is 365. It's, it's all year. I hunt turkeys in the, in the spring and fall, uh, but I, I dream about them at night and I think about them during the day. Yeah. Ah, man, 
I love it. That's like the, uh, <laughs> if I could, if I could, you know, answer, that's exactly what I would say. I mean, it is just, it is ingrained uh, in, in who I am as an individual. And man, I love meeting other people that, that kind of, you know, have that, that same, um, I guess, passion and, and quite frankly, problem uh, it's at <laughs> some points <laughs> in our lives. So, um, so Brent, where, where are you from? So I'm from Southern Iowa. And when most people think about Iowa, they think about driving through Iowa. It's a flyover state to many. Um, and they drive through on I-80 or I-35. And what they experience is a lot of flatness, which Iowa does have a lot of really great flat black dirt uh, that grows a lot of corn and soybeans. But where I'm from is the is the poor part of Iowa. It's the rolling hills in Southern Iowa. And it's it may be uh, you know, poor in terms of soil quality, but it's rich in terms of wildlife diversity. We're very blessed to have many big deer and turkeys here because it's um, it's much of this this part of the country is uh, pasture and and forest uh, versus the flat black dirt because of the rolling clay hills that I'm in. So uh, that's uh, where I'm from. I grew up here on a family farm and been here my whole life and uh, hunted turkeys from California to New York and a lot of places in between. But this is where I I base my operation out of. Very good. Now, did you grow up hunting turkeys? Well, we didn't have turkeys when I was a kid on the farm. And, uh, you know, we had, we did have turkeys on the farm. We raised bronze turkeys, which are, they're the ones that look like wild turkeys. And, and I always had a thing for turkeys. I, I even uh, had a couple of pets. We kept one of the gobblers and one of the hens. And of course uh, they were named Tom and Henrietta, real creative. Um, and we had the, them for a number of years. And the gobbler, Tom, um, my dad and I had a, a what I would call a neat bond with him where where we were kind of in his flock. My younger siblings were not in his. They, they were under him. Right. <laughs> but he would he would knock them down and tread on them, do his simulated breeding. So they were all terrified of him. But I. I learned turkey talk at a young age and yeah. I really enjoyed being around those turkeys. And then in 1988, I saw my first turkey on the family farm. And I tell people it was a defining moment. It absolutely captured my interest. It was a thing of grace as this hen come up out of a fence row and flew off. I just couldn't believe that we had a turkey on the farm. And so I started to get books and videos and learn about turkeys. And in the nineties, I began to hunt turkeys and never looked back. And, but I've also never lost my reverence and respect for the bird. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's in 1988, you're the first time you saw a wild turkey. I don't think people realize how, how far this animal has come in, in our lifetimes. I'm, I'm 40 years old. And, you know, I, I hear all of these stories, I mean, just in, in recent memory where there there were no just no populations of turkeys or such small, uh, you know, populations of, of wild turkeys on the landscapes that that now we've got an entire generation of, of hunters that, that haven't experienced that they've experienced, you know, good turkey numbers, good turkey hunting. So, you know, I think it's an important story to tell. And that's the that story is is, is really the history of the wild turkey. and 
Absolutely. you know, reference point for all of us, 1988, no turkeys. And so yeah. what, what's, what's this bird and, and, you know, we'll just kind of stick to, you know, modern times, I guess, what's this bird gone through in terms of, of destruction and, and rebirth? Well, I mean, you can, you can say that by 1900, uh, there was turkeys limited to 12% of their ancestral habitat. Right. So, I mean, just absolutely a decimated turkey population down to 200,000 or less from a population of 10 million when Columbus set foot, you know, on, on American soil. And, and now you think we have 6 million ish. So half of what would have been here when the colonists arrived. So, so you can see the, the absolute, you know, drop that, that turkeys went through and, and, and some of it's understandable, right? You had people that were subsistence hunting and that's different than today. So today we don't really have subsistence hunting. We're hunting with our heads and our hearts more than with our stomachs. Of course, they end up on the table and that's a big incentive to hunt is to have really great, you know, natural wild meat, but we're not hunting with our stomachs the same as they were, as well as, you know, you, people were trying to, to make a living on their parcel of land. And and then, of course, there was some abuse, as always happens, right, as things get uh, exploited. And so you had mass cutting of, of timber. Um, you had, you know, a lot of, of destruction to native habitat of turkeys and and market hunting, as you mentioned, was was of course a factor, and didn't even matter early on as they were trying to make laws to, to counteract that because there was really no enforcement or funding to make it. You could make all the laws you want; people aren't going to follow unless there's enforcement and funding. And so that's kind of how we ended up to where we're at. We can go much deeper than that, but today we are living in a golden age of turkey hunting and many would argue it's not the golden age anymore because that was in the 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 80s and 90s and there's some truth to that we've we've seen a drop in turkey numbers in many places and we won't get into what what those reasons might be because i still think we're trying to figure out what all those reasons are some are very evident some are still uh, a bit you know not well understood need more information but but clearly we're still in a much better place than we were, you know, a hundred years ago or 50 years ago. Um, and we have a huntable population in 49 States, which yeah. that didn't happen until the nineties. And so we're still in, in kind of a, a young age of modern Turkey hunting. Yeah. So I want to kind of talk about market hunting and, and really the, the, the timber destruction on, you know, of the habitat for, for all wildlife across this country. So, so just real quick for a lot of people that don't know, define market hunting, what that was. Yep. So that was hunting that was specific to commerce. So you would have hunters that would go out and look for ways to kill game in mass and then to market it because it's not, you know, if you're going to sell a, a turkey or a duck to your neighbor, that, that's kind of that's kind of lunch money, right? It's not gonna really ever allow you to to really retire on that or to to be comfortable. And so what happened is people realized with with the natural resources we had again, 
some of these without adequate protection could be exploited. And I don't think that the the thought process was um, there. These were not necessarily evil people that were out to, to do harm. They were enterprising people that didn't understand the consequences of what they were doing in many cases. Um, so, so we have to look at it maybe through those eyes, but what it meant is they would use any method and, and some of that you could say is ingenuity. Uh, some of it now we look at and say, good grief, I can't believe they had to outlaw dynamite to hunt turkeys. And they did. There, we, you can see the laws in 1901 where three states had to make a law to say no dynamite for turkeys. And they had to outlaw, you know, lanterns and, and uh, punt guns and, and all those things that allowed to kill turkeys in mass and, or on the roost. Um, they had to outlaw fires, people setting fires to draw stuff. And, and while there may have been some benefit from, from, from the fire with some early successional habitat, it certainly didn't do any good to the, the turkeys being slaughtered. But, but that's really what I think about market hunting. Uh, Paul is is the the uh, you know the the goal was to kill as much as you can and have enough to sell to make money on it. You know we have here here in Ohio we have this uh, the Ohio History Connection and they have a a database that you can search images that they've curated over over the decades. And one day I, I typed in wild turkey. I wanted to see what they had gathered. And the in the in the first picture that popped up was a picture of market hunters. Uh, uh -huh. that someone had, uh, had, had drawn or painted, uh, you know, 1830s, 1840s, somewhere, somewhere in that. And, and in the picture, there's, I don't know, I can't remember how many, but there's probably 30 wild turkeys running through the scene and there's deer and bears and foxes and, and all of these little critters. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that uh, I, it's really starting to become lost to history for a lot of people, you know, the, the impact uh, of, of market hunting and, what I find interesting, you talk about, and 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 you'll be able to talk about this more. But the, the people that really started to to notice a, a, the impact that market hunting were hunters, and the people that started to push for regulation and started to push for laws and law enforcement that we know were sportsmen and hunters, and right. and it, it really has kind of it, it it was the beginning of of you know the North American model of wildlife conservation and and, and what we have now. Uh, you know, with the organizations that, that protect hunting. So uh, give us a little background on, on kind of the, the creation of wildlife rules and regulations, if you would. Yeah, I think I think what you had to have to get there was a need, right? So the, the need became people realizing that wildlife was disappearing. And again, hunters factored heavily into that. Who, who cares more about wildlife than hunters? especially the ones that are hunting with, like I said, their heads and hearts and not just their stomachs. It's, it's, uh, it's a mindset. Uh, a hunter goes on a journey. I mean, many people could relate to say, hey, in my early years, I was just out to kill, right? I mean, it's the killed that thrilled. And you can see it on social media with people, you know, trying to get likes or whatever. It's, there's something about us that there's a phase we go through. There's some great books on that right the journey of a hunter you saw it with theodore roosevelt where you know his mission was to kill a buffalo whatever it took and he killed an old bull and then he realized not just you know he didn't just kill a, an old bull he killed maybe the last buffalo on his ranch in north dakota 
And, and so it puts people in a different mindset. You get a different level of concern. And, and I think we arrived at that because we created a problem. There were other things happening at the same time. There were World War II actually figures into this because we have soldiers coming home from World War II um, that, you know, we our economy uh, caught fire and really took off. This is, you know, only what a, a generation after the Great Depression and, and all these soldiers returning and, and then have disposable income. You get a middle class and they want recreational activity and hunting. The country was still very rural then, even more so than now. And hunting was a, a great opportunity. And so so there was a demand. So that's another piece of it. There, there has to be a problem and then there has to be some demand. And so now you have that. Uh, and then I think you also have to have thought leaders that can offer the path forward. And, and we had people like that, people like uh, Aldo Leopold. And I love uh, Leopold's, I, I've got it written down here that um, he said that, uh, looking for the quote. Well, essentially what it was, was uh, his big idea was that land is a living organism with flora and fauna as part of that system. And, and so what he was really teaching uh, as a thought leader was the fact that we have to be we have to be stewards of that. If land is a living organism, then we have to care for it that way. You had um, guys like I mentioned Herbert Stoddard, land management um, for him is something that that, you know, builds on on history and and, and uh, he. he he was looking at new management practices like the use of fire. And then in 1959, you had a group of state biologists that got together for the first wild turkey symposium and, and really got their heads together and said, hey, listen, what have we tried? What's working and what's not? So, so then you, you start to get that collaboration amongst people and, and they decide it's not working game farming turkeys. There's been hundreds of thousands of turkeys raised on farms and released, and it's not sustainable. But, you know, as we're trapping and transferring, that's working. And then, Paul, the other things that happen is you have to have the advancements in tools, and, and that's where the, the rocket net, which was developed from the, the cannon net, um, was a great uh, tool in the conservation pocket to, to be able to trap turkeys instead of drug them and, and do things right, uh, set up pins trying to catch them. And and then the, the radio uh, collar, radio telemetry was also huge. And these are innovations that you could say came out of the war, World War II. So, so innovation. And then I think the, the, the last piece is the cooperation and, and coordination between everyone. That's hunters, state biologists, thought leaders, and, and that happens a lot through groups like the Turkey Federation, right? That happened in 73 when when uh, it just uh, it helped swing things around uh, to, to have an organization that did that, which, you know, because you're part of that organization. But to me, those are a lot of the pieces that that took us from where we were to where we are. So who was who really the first group that, that kind of identified the need um, to, to really start focusing on wild turkey management. And, and you know, the, obviously someone 
Duff Holbrook maybe you know saw the yeah. saw the issue that that we that we had created with poor habitat management and hunting and and all of these things. So so how did that how did that evolve to you know what we have now? What were the beginnings of wild turkey management in this country? Well, it, it's hard to pin it down to a person. There were a number, but there there are. You mentioned Duff Holbrook, so he's very significant because he's the one that really uh, was the one that employed the the cannon net and, and really started to get, um, that idea out there that this was an effective tool, but you had guys like Henry Mosby from Virginia, I think, who's maybe really pivotal because when he in the thirties, 1930s started to look and promote Turkey, um, uh, restoration, he, he went there, there's a, a, a great book. In fact, I've got it right here that Brian Lovett wrote called the Turkey Hunters. And, uh, it's just a fabulous book. And, and, and he, uh, he had Lovett Williams, uh, write the introductory kind of first chapter and Lovett Williams was, again, he was, he and Mosby were, were part of that, you know, early Lovett was the, the younger generation in the fifties at the, and Mosby was the older generation kind of handing it over. But, but what, what, uh, the book says is that, uh, as Henry Mosby asked around like, Hey, um, what's the status of the Eastern wild Turkey here? And, and what could we do to restore it? Um, the, the, the state game agency at the time says we don't have Eastern wild turkeys. We, we have native wild turkeys. The point being, they didn't even understand <laughs> Yeah. the bird they had right they didn't even know what an eastern wild turkey was that that's where things were at the time but mosby and bailey and and guys like that wayne bailey is, is who i mentioned in there were ones that were very early on uh helping to promote the idea that the turkey had value that there were management tools that we could we could employ to restore them and uh, and then that was passed to the, to the guys like uh, Lovett Williams, and of course now we think of guys like uh, Brett Collier and Michael Chamberlain, and and the new generation taking that on. So, Brent, what was the where was at the at the low point of wild turkey populations? What was kind of the twenties and thirties were were the the low point, and yeah. and if you look at you know literature from that time. Uh, magazine articles and such. I mean, turkey hunters then were so few because there was there was no opportunity, and and that's where this kind of mythical turkey hunter hunter was born. You think about the secret of turkey hunter, uh, the the one that <clears throat> will uh, you know uh, wear his shoes backwards or or cover his tracks and 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 spread spread falsehoods about where the turkeys are at. That happens because they're just are there so few turkeys that if you're going to be a turkey hunter, you guard what you know. And, and that's the, that's the turkey hunter of the 1920s and thirties. And by the way, limited mostly to areas of the South where there were enough continuous acres of timber that were remote to, for turkeys to survive. Now you also had populations, the other subspecies, but they were more in, you know, isolated places that most people didn't travel to hunt, but, but yeah, that was kind of the low point. So I, one of the questions, and you, and you just answered it, but we'll, we'll, we'll kind of dive in a little deeper, the cradle of the wild turkey. So we've got the low point, 1920s, 1930s, 
um, and and the cradle of of the wild turkey, if you will, that was really like the 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 hills and hollers of the Appalachian Mountains, from from my understanding. So now the 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 turkey hunters of the day kind of those mythical turkey hunters and 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 i love the stories the shoes backwards and you know wiping out tire lines and putting out string and, and all this this you know this yeah. crazy stories that, that you hear um those those folks just were they protective of the turkeys that they had i mean were they were you know the the folks that live there i mean were they upset that that states were coming in and, and taking turkeys from virginia or northern alabama or you know northwest georgia and 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 dispersing them to ohio and vermont i mean was that was there a battle with those uh yeah. really those original hunters i think it depended on the people um you know in addition to what i would call the hills and hollers of places like the appalachians you you also had kind of the lowlands of the south that were also very good uh reservoirs for turkeys and and so i i say it depends on the people because you could look at at mr fox hayes right from uh from the south and say he was one that actually promoted hey let's let's move some of these turkeys and let's protect them and and so people were willing to do it um there were there were exceptions to that of course there there are still exceptions to that there 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 you can go online to to blogs or 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 uh you know online forums and see people or get they get pretty ticked if if a turkey gets trapped and moved if yeah. it's in their backyard and i get that uh, but it does pay it forward um i, I don't know if that answers your question but i think it's, it does. there's no hard fast rule to say that you know it, all people were upset, but if it's in your backyard and somebody takes it away, yeah, that that's short term. You know that that's going to have you know, an impact. Yeah. So when 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 trap and transfer, and that's the practice of literally trapping a wild turkey and moving it to another part of either the state or the country, uh, when did that really get like kind of geared up, and 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 well, just started happening more than than one place? Yeah. It 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 was happening. I mean, there, there was trap and transfer going on in, in the 1930s, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't really successful because some of the methods they used, like I mentioned, you know, they they would drug the turkeys and not all of them survived. Some of the other methods they would the turkeys would be injured, <clears throat> but there wasn't a large enough sample size really to show anything. And it wasn't until the 1950s that that really turned around. And, and that's where I said at that 1959 first wild turkey symposium, you, you can, you can buy that book. I've got that book and it, it's actually a great book to read uh, because it's, it's the dialogue from the discussion where it'll tell you who's talking and, and, and somebody will say, um, hey, I've got this data here, and it says that all these turkeys that we game farmed and released, 90% of them died, but 90% of them lived that we trapped and transferred. And by the way, that population has tripled in size in the last couple of years. And so, so there's some really good data that starts to emerge, and it's in the 50s that that really takes off. And, and at that time, the state gate game agencies were the ones that were really promoting that. Um, there, there were a number of states that were involved with that early on. I, I'm not sure I could, I could definitively say what all states those were. Um, but, but clearly the fifties and sixties were very, very, um, busy times for movements of turkeys. Yeah. So 
we've we've got state agencies really leading the charge on the trap and transfer. Why the creation of an organization like the National Wild Turkey Federation, early seventies? What was the need that that organization filled in the early days? Well, I think going back to how we started, turkey hunting is a lifestyle for many, and turkey hunting is a different kind of hunting as well. I think turkey hunting is a kind of hunting that doesn't suffer from some of the trappings that come with, you know, other big game turkeys is a big game species, in my opinion, that, that stays away from some of that trophy status yeah. that, that, that happens in, in other endeavors. And, and so therefore I think turkey hunters have a, a more common bond and, and we have more in common than we don't. We may have different choices in how we pursue them. Um, you know, we may hunt in different places, but what, what we understand about the turkey is true no matter what turkey we're hunting. The, the motivations we have to do that are mostly ones that bond us together. And so I, I think at that point, what, what the Turkey Federation filled a void for is the need for us to have an identity as turkey hunters. Now you, you, you went from that secretive society I talked about in the 20s and 30s to people that um, had opportunity down in front of them. So, so you look at the 80s and 90s and my gosh, the, the, the turkey products exploded, right? You had a number of companies that made, made, their, uh, made their fortunes on wild turkey calls and camo and shotguns and shells, all these things that were now serving. But what, what did, we still didn't have was kind of that common identity. And, and, and certainly that's, that's a, a void that I think that organization helped fill. You know, it's yeah the the community that that surrounds turkey hunting is man it's as it's as uh it's as close and as tight knit and as welcoming as I think you could possibly be, and yeah. I I I just love hearing that you know why why was it why was an organization like the NWT here to 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 give turkey hunters a community to to bring them together it's 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 people focused on on what keeping wild turkeys on the landscape, you know, promoting the For conservation sure. of the wild turkey and, 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 you know, the preservation of our hunting heritage, which is the the mission of that organization. So yeah, that's, that's, I, can, I can tell you about my journey. I, I can remember, you know, uh, meeting Rob Keck at one of the first conventions I went to and just kind of being mesmerized, like, man, this guy is the CEO of this organization. And, and he, he visited with me. <laughs> it was in the restroom. Yeah, <laughs> getting rid of a little water but but i mean you know it was amazing because you had access to people you had access to the to the hunters that i i admired the 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 you know competitive callers the steve stoltz uh, and and uh you know chris parish and, and guys like that and and the call makers i mean you know it was amazing to be able to be a part of that community in a different way and and i think the the other thing was Turkey hunters care, right? Turkey hunters do care about the turkey and, and they want to know how can we help. And that's that's another pivotal piece with an organization is saying, hey, this is how you can help, right? So you go to the banquet and, and you, you know, you help uh, you help by participating, your money goes to a cause and and uh, you get to to see the the fruits of your labor. So I think that's another incentive. Yeah. 
I've got I've got a funny story I'll share with you about about Rob Cag. So convention NWTF convention 2022. I was down there. I was, I was checking people in for the convention, and this guy. You know, I, I had this huge line. This guy walks up and he walks in front of uh, you know a couple of people and he says, "Hey, did you print my badge off?" And I look up and it's Rob Keck and I'm like, "Oh, I recognize you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's Papa Rob, yeah. man. It's like the the voice of the wild turkey." And I'm just kind of staring at him, and he looks at me, and he's like, Paul, print my damn badge off. And he's just like, give me my stuff. Because like, he was he was running late to get to like one of the call judging competitions. Yeah. And and he was just, he was just like, I need you to hurry up right now. Like, I need you to go, man. He's like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. So yeah. it was just that was my first, my first experience with Rob Keck. And he shook my hand. And he's like, you know, give you just gives you that Rob Keck experience, man. Glad oh, absolutely. You're, glad yeah, you're yeah, here, he, man. You know, yeah, glad you're part of the family and he just he, he grabs his right badge on. and walks off you know it was just but it was just funny because for for a lot of people you know rob Keck was was that kind of that that you know that once again that that personification of the mythical turkey hunter you know yep. um and you see him on tv and and, and you hear him on the radio as, as a kid and you're like oh man that's pretty cool you know it was, it was cool to meet right. him so for sure. Now, yeah. what, one of the one of the things that that I am absolutely fascinated by, and and, and we're talking about, we've been talking, and, and that's just kind of the culture surrounding turkey hunting, and it's and and it, we've touched on it. It's very, it's just such a, it's it's very hunter centric. You know, we we identify as as turkey hunters. You know, that's that's kind of who we are, man. And so, what what was the evolution from that that mythical turkey hunter where? Guys are, you know, do you hear any turkeys? Got no, no, there are no turkeys in this county in Alabama or Ohio, wherever you're hunting. So, where, where, how did it kind of evolve to, you know, that community aspect? You know, who who were some of the people that that really started to to create that transformation to what we have now? Yeah, well, I mean, I will, <clears throat> I will tell you, I'm a I'm a turkey literature enthusiast, right? A, a turkey book nerd. I that's uh that's what i can give you is some relevance there because there were no books written on the wild turkey up until um 1914 when uh edward mcelaney who was the heir of the tabasco fortune and quite a conservationist published a book called the wild turkey and its hunting that was written actually by charles jordan from Louisiana, he was killed by a poacher. He was kind of a game uh, manager on a on a plantation, and he was murdered by a poacher. But his book was then published by McElhaney. and and so you ask, you know, who influenced the hunters uh, as as turkeys um, were were on the way back? Well, in 1914, we didn't have the turkeys, but we we had somebody knowledgeable enough to write a book about them. And others started to do so. So Tom Turpin um, wrote a book in 1924, uh, Simon Everett, 1928, Henry Davis, 1949, um, Archibald Rutledge uh, wrote many really, really great articles on wild turkeys in magazines during the the mid-1900s. And and so the reason I mention them is because they end up being influencers to, to people that as Turkey started to come back, people started to find these classic books and writings. And, and then you had, uh, once the Turkey started to come back, 
there was a guy named uh, uh, Charles Whittington that wrote a book called Tall Timber Gabriels. And it was the first book I, I would say was dedicated to spring wild turkey hunting. And that was in the 1970s. So you can see the gap, right? But between when some of these early books were written, 1914 to 1949, mostly around what the wild turkey was many of the tactics talked about were were uh, fall tactics but now in the 70s you start to see an explosion of literature and then you you also had um, the game call companies in the 80s that really took it to the next level so think about Quaker boy Dick Kirby and and, and Will Primos and Knight and Hale and and all, and all those different game call companies that uh, use the video format. So that's a big one too. So aside from books, videos was how I learned to turkey hunt. I had to teach myself. I went and got the videos and, and watched them and, you know, HS strut, you name it, uh, the dreary's that there are so many great videos that were out there. And I think that was, that was a, an opportunity as well that, that people, could actually bring it in their living room, whether it was through a book or a video. And that's that's kind of your ability to learn about it more than at that point, you know, even was probably more impactful than being part of an organization or, or whatever. You mentioned fall hunting for turkeys, and I absolutely love fall turkey hunting. And let's talk about just real quick about that. That's really where like modern turkey hunting kind of like the foundation started in the fall. I mean, it wasn't really spring hunting. Wasn't, was it, was it frowned upon? Was it because that was the the breeding season and people didn't, didn't want to, to interrupt that. What was kind of the, the start really of, of modern Turkey hunting? Yeah. So that is very true that I'm a fault. Like I said, I'm a fall hunter too. And I, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's a different kind of hunt. And I think people also have a misconception that fall hunting you're you're somehow taking advantage of the turkeys and turkeys are turkeys all year long if you know i mean you can you can use turkeys against themselves all year long right so in the spring you call to a gobbler and, and you're using his mating um you know instinct or you're you're using gobbler calls in the spring because he's you know got his dander up and you're challenging him well it's it's no different in the fall you're you're essentially talking turkey. Turkeys are gregarious. And then the fall is a fun time to hunt because yes, it is. those dominance flocks are, are you know, you, you get a flock of gobblers coming in the fall uh, and, and it is exciting. You can get them to gobble. and But it's no less exciting than having a group of a hens and young of the year come in and they're talking and, and uh, you know, juxtaposing for position. And, and, and it's it's a lot of fun. But yeah, it's it's true that most fall hunting, uh, mostly fall hunting happened uh, prior to restoration. And it was really because of the lack of preservation for meat. I mean, you could shoot and eat a turkey when it, when it wasn't cold outside, but most of your hunters at that time were rural and they were working all day. And they were, you know, if they were agricultural, they were working in the field and they didn't have time to hunt in the spring they were planting it wasn't until after harvest in the fall that they had so you know hunting became kind of a whether you're hunting deer ducks or turkeys or squirrels it was pretty much after harvest 
then you could have your game smoked and hung in the smoke shack and you could preserve it. It was just kind of an artifact of the times versus people discovered fall hunting and liked it better. It was just because that's what they had to do. And, and then what's also interesting is, as I went back and I've read a lot of articles, what I found is there were, a, there was a lot more hunting of turkeys in the spring than people realized. There was, um, I'm not going to remember the, the, the exact uh, numbers, but I think it was uh, in 1898, there were 28 states that had wild turkey seasons and 11 of those 28 seasons actually stretched into March, April, and May. So you had a fair number of states that allowed spring hunting, if you will, back then. And you had guys like Charles Jordan, who I mentioned, who wrote the, the first book on turkey hunting that McElhaney published. That was quite a spring turkey hunter and talked, he made no apologies for it. He actually promoted the idea, talked about how the gobble was so exciting. It's just the culture at the time didn't lend itself to spring hunting. I mean, that is, that is fascinating. And I, you know, I, I find myself sticking up for fall turkey hunting pretty regularly because there's, like you said, there's, there's a perception that you're taking advantage of, of the wild turkey. And, and my, my take with, and I'll, I'll get on my soapbox here for about 20 seconds. My take is that in the fall, that turkey is, is focused and as wiry as they possibly can be because they're not interrupted with the idea of breeding a hen or, you know, all of the things that come with the breeding season, they are at peak alertness. I feel like during, during that time. And man, I, it is a, a challenge, uh, that, that is, that is a lot of fun. I, I was able to hunt with Turkey dogs here for the first time, uh, in Ohio, we allow that. And that was, that was really Great. neat. I didn't Great. get a chance to, didn't get a chance to kill some, but, uh, man, they're, they're just, they're super active in the fall and so many people overlook it because they'd rather be hanging from a tree, you know, trying to, trying to kill a deer. Sure. So. Well, I mean, I, I think that it's the turkey hunter is rare that doesn't get energized by the gobble and and haven't hunted them a lot in the spring and fall. Yeah, there's a lot more gobbling in the spring. And that is very rewarding. I mean, I to me, a successful hunt is getting a gobble. Right. And, yes. and, and I've had many fall hunts where that didn't happen. And, and I, I still really enjoyed it. But I have had some good gobbling in the fall. And I can yeah. tell you that is pretty that is pretty exciting. Yeah, it 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 really is. But I'll tell you what, man, there's nothing better than that spring, that spring morning. And they're just those boys yeah. are up there just just hammering. So yeah. um when we look at, you know, we we've talked a lot about, you know, where where we've come as as a group, turkey hunters and, and where the animals come, uh, you know, from from really just the 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 precipice of of just utter destruction. What what's kind of the what's kind of the next chapter for, for the wild Turkey, you know, where, where we're at now, culturally speaking from a hunter where the, where the wild Turkey's at, you know, in, in terms of uh, a new set of challenges and, and, and what's kind of the future of the wild Turkey uh, family, if you will. Well, that, that is a million dollar question. Yeah. I wish I knew the answer for sure. I, I do think that I'm seeing some writing on the wall in terms of, People are coming to the realization that how we hunt matters, why we hunt matters, and that we have been advantaged in a way that may make us rethink why and how we hunt. So if you go way back and think about when the Mayflower docked at, at Plymouth, 
you know, they encountered a culture of Native Americans who had been living with turkeys for generations and, and doing it very sustainably because they depended on that land. They depended on that meat and the feathers and the spurs and the bones. And, and so they had found a way to coexist, right? And, and early settlers, again, hunting with their stomachs and looking for how they could uh, enterprise a bit, uh, make a buck, things led to exploitation. We've turned that back around to the point where now we, we benefit from a larger number of turkeys, but but just like the settlers brought guns to a, to a bow fight, <laughs> right? We, we now have brought an increased technology to the wild turkey, which puts different pressures on it. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the, the loads that allow for a, a, a cleaner kill, which can also extend out farther and the guns that allow that, uh, and things keep changing. I think what we have to do is make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that it's okay for the turkey to win. In fact, that's what makes turkey hunting special is that it's a chess match and it's the it's the, you know, dozens of decisions you make from when you set your foot out of your truck to when you turn around to walk home. It's the experience you get in between each of those steps that makes turkey hunting rich. It's not a trophy sport. It's a very personal pursuit. There's not any one way to do it. We do have to choose, but we should rethink perhaps what we will do between each of those steps to ensure that we're given the turkey every advantage yeah. because when i started hunting turkeys to when i'm i'm hunting turkeys now you know nearly three decades later things have changed uh, there are some things that are easier some things maybe are more difficult in terms of where there's fewer birds in some places or more pressures but but the, the technology sh certainly hasn't <laughs> made it tougher right it actually yeah. makes us think about this is a this is an up close sport that's one thing I would tell everybody. It's not a game of how far, it's a game of how close. Yeah. There's nothing to compare to shooting a turkey that is in your personal space that you can make eye contact with and you can feel the rattle of the gobble and the thrum of the drum, right? I mean, that is that is how to do it and get every bit of enjoyment out of it versus sniping a turkey at 60 or 70 yards. Yeah. I, I have my, the hair on my arm is standing up, man. I, 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 that just, some of the biggest smiles that I've had on my face walking out of the woods, I've been walking out empty handed. And yeah. I think there's, there's, there's something. And, and for people that are listening to this that, that haven't killed your first Turkey, you're going to be excited when it happens. And there is always a, just a very intense, bittersweet moment for me. And I, I forget who said this. I, I think it was Colonel Tom Kelly where he said, you know, if I could breathe life into him, I'd, I'd hunt him all over again. You know, and yeah. there's a, there's a, there's a moment as a Turkey hunter, once you reach that, that level of appreciation and reverence for this animal that man, when it happens, you are, you are excited, but man, there's something that just rips your heart out. When, oh, yeah. when you finally get to kneel next to him and you know like i said man I, I i've i've had those moments where i've gotten my face kicked in by a wild turkey and i walk out i'm like oh man that was freaking amazing like that was the best hunt i've ever had and I'm, i have nothing you know to show for it other than than just those 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 gobbles ringing in your head you know and and i think that's an important thing it's that that i want people that are listening to this it's okay for the turkey to win and that's yeah, that's I, a I yeah 
Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's what, again, turkey hunting is a bit of an art form because of how we get to choose to do it. And because it is all those, it, it's a culmination of all the decisions we make and the tools we use. It's a bit of an art form. Uh, so is the part of storytelling. And I tell people again, this is what I love about the culture of turkey hunting is I love to listen to you. I would love to hear your stories. Actually, we're going to have to have another call where we just yeah. talk and tell stories because I want to hear your stories about where you got your butt kicked and yeah. where you won. That to me, and I love to tell people that, but can you imagine if you could never tell somebody about a turkey hunt? If you could go turkey hunting, but you could never tell somebody about it, to me, it would it would crush me. It would take yeah. a huge part of it of enjoyment away because turkey hunting is not just about uh, the the kill. It's about memorializing the fallen in that case, right? It's yeah. a, or or elevating the foe that beats you, and and you do that through stories. It's again, it's why I love the literature because there's so many great stories out there. And, and it's a, a, a medium in turkey hunting that allows us to relive the hunt. And that's, again, part of how you, you live it all year long is you have a community of other hunters that get you and you can talk about it. And to me, again, the quality of the hunt will, will only embellish and add to that storytelling. Yeah. Brent, give me, give the listeners to this program, give them if they want to dive into the world of turkey literature, what's a good book to start with? If you are a, a new turkey hunter and a book that's not necessarily tactics, but more of the heart and soul of, of why we turkey hunt. Where's a good place yeah. to start? Well, the easy answer I'll give first, and that's Tom Kelly's 10th Legion. And it's still in print. I mean, you know, fifty the uh, the 50th anniversary issue just got released. It's amazing. It's 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 been in print so long, and it's and people are still buying it, selling a thousand copies a year, just like that, right? Yeah. It's it's amazing, and it's because I describe Tenth Legion as the turkey hunting manifesto. It's really not a collection of stories, and it's not a collection of how to. It's it's almost um, a tale of who turkey hunters are and who the turkey is, and it weaves all that together. And you go, oh my gosh, this is this is me, right? I can see myself, and this is the turkey I'm hunting. And it's just really well crafted, really great humor. Tom Kelly has such good satire. Um, that's one I would always recommend. Um, a really good recent book was by Ron Jolly called Memories of Spring. And again, it's it's not a how-to book. It really is a story a story book, but it's not just uh, hey, me and Joe went out and killed a turkey. There, there's a lot of those which have their place, but this is again more experiential. It's much more about the journey of turkey hunting and the people we encounter and the turkeys we encounter, and how all of those are unique and bring up a, a range of emotions. Um, yeah. those are a couple books that are easily, easily available. I think would appeal to everybody. Yeah. I, I couldn't recommend those two anymore. And, and that's, 
I would I would give the same recommendation. What's the first book that any new turkey hunter or already seasoned turkey hunter should read? Tenth Legion from 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 Colonel Tom Kelly. Uh, you know, I, I sent out I, I bought a couple copies and, and sent them out to some of my friends for Christmas that that hadn't read it. I'm like, this is unacceptable. You have to read this book. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's just a, a a great recommendation. So, Brent, um, where where can people find you on social media if if uh, if you want to give out that information? Well, I'm on Facebook, Brent Rogers. You'll recognize which Brent Rogers because my picture is a gobbling turkey in front of an American flag. Seems okay. appropriate. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I am Gobble Getter on Instagram. Uh, also admin of a, a Facebook group called Vintage Turkey Calls and Literature Collector. Uh, because I have a great passion and, and a nice collection of vintage turkey calls and literature. And, and I think turkey hunting uh, lives through the past as much as it does the future. Uh, so those are a few places people can find me. Excellent. I'll, I'll tell you what, I've, I have resisted the urge to get into vintage turkey call collecting I, a, a dear friend and a, and a really wonderful supporter of the nwtf you you're familiar with him bob falcher oh uh, yes. every, yeah every once in a while he'll send me a picture or something that that he'll you know that he has in his collection and i'm like bob you got to stop doing this because i know that once i buy that first one that it is just going to open up the floodgates and and you know i i, I have just uh you know, I have a small collection. I'll show you when we're done here, but, but Brent, I thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your passion and the way that you communicate, uh, you know, what you are so passionate about. And that's wild Turkey and Turkey hunters, my friend, thank you so much. No problem. I would give one plug and say to your listeners that I am going to be at the national Wild Turkey Federation convention and we'll be doing a seminar called Mossy Oak Bottomland Book Clubs Talks Turkey Literature with Brent Rogers. We'll have Cuz Strickland and Bobby Cole. Uh, we'll have uh, Tom Doc Weddle, who has done four U.S. Super Slams, Hunter Farrier, who has the Spring Legion brand. We're going to have George Dinka, who's uh, I've just written a book with him. The book is just out. We wrote a book called uh, Guide to um, Guide to uh, Turkey Calls and Literature Collector. Uh, anyway, the, these are things that I would would encourage people to go to. The, the seminars are always good at the Federation, but uh, I would love to have folks come and listen. Oh, man, that's going to that is a powerhouse. Uh, seminar that you're that you're going to put on now are, are, are for the people that can't make it to Nashville are you going to be able to record that and put that on YouTube or, or Facebook what I hope is that uh, we'll have somebody to record it um, I have a, a conversation going on so stay tuned yes I do believe that there will be a recording that we can get out and that's great Brent thank you so much for your time my pleasure Paul thank you yep take care